that you are here. Uh, got one of our friends here this weekend that I wanted to take a couple minutes and greet you. This is Ruben Zeusman. He's here with his wife, Galit. Uh, Ruben is our guide in Israel, and um, he, um, he makes it over here oh, once, maybe once every other year. We make it there. We try to every year. Developed a real true uh, love and friendship for each other, um, and then we had this great thing happen. Their daughter, uh, got a great job in Aspen, Colorado. So now uh, they have a reason to, um, to, to be here more often, and uh, we are the beneficiaries of it. But uh, our trip this September, Reuben and uh, his wife um, now are, they put the whole trip together for us, and uh, we, we've put our lives in their hands uh, more often than, uh, than not, and they always take such good care of us. But we were adding it up. We've made um, about 12 trips. I think this will be the 13th trip that we're doing. And we averaged just, if you think, somewhere between 35 and 40. Sometimes it's in the 80s and sometimes it's in the 20s. But if you just added up all those trips and an average of 35 to 40 people, you're talking uh, more than 400 people now have made the trip from JFC to uh, the Holy Land. And yeah, we are just, we're excited about that. Our, our goal, ultimately, is to get everybody who wants to go an opportunity to be able to go. But um, with them here this weekend, I know so many of you know them. I wanted to give them a chance to uh, greet you. But they've put together a little promotional video that I thought was so good, I wanted to show it to you. And it just highlights some of the things, not even, not even close to all of the things, but some of the things that you would see in Israel. And they did such a good job with it. I wanted you to see it, and then I'll give Ruben a few minutes to say hi. So watch this real quick. Fabulous job, yeah. Yay! 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 
You did a great job, man. And we will remember this the rest of our lives. Hi there, I'm Ruven Zussman. I've been a tour guide in Israel for the last 25 years. I'd like to invite you to come and see Israel with me. I can assure you, this will be a trip of a lifetime. Everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? Yeah, it's good to be here. We, on behalf of my wife, Galit, and myself, we want to extend our gratitude and thanks for the warm hospitality that we've been shown here. I want to say hi to all the people here at the Lone Tree campus and all the other campuses, all friends and acquaintance, which we always uh, are aspiring to increase the cycle of people from the great Jubilee family. Um, we, we're, we come here and it's always a very pleasant part of our visits to the States. And what I've been asked to do in, <laughs> we can negotiate that. Um, <laughs> a few minutes is just tell you a little bit about Israel and a few good reasons why you might want to consider joining the upcoming trip in September or future trips to Israel. So we will kind of start with the um, earthly reasons. Um, coming to Israel, you'll get to see me in other places, dressed in other outfits, and telling you about other things. You'll get to hear a little bit of the dynamics that go back and forth between Pastor John, myself, and our world-famous driver, Giora. Those that have been, remember Giora, right? Okay. So those are, you know, a few things. Um, one of the things that you'll learn is a few words in Hebrew, which would have been one of the languages that the Lord Jesus spoke. And a lot of his teachings were delivered in Hebrew. That's an important thing, just right there. Moving up to some other neat things, just in terms of uh, facts, interesting facts about Israel. Israel is number one in the world in successful exits in startup ventures per capita. It is a country that obviously is doing something right in order to produce such a high level of success. Um, Israel is the number three in the world when it comes to the presence of the foreign press. Washington, D.C. in the United States is number one. Brussels, the headquarters of the EU, is number two. And then Israel. It is, that I think says something right there for a nation of just under nine million people. If you compare it to the United States, you're number one, we're number three. I'll take that any day. <laughs> um, just to give you a comparison, anybody happen to know and those of you that have been with me in Israel may remember this figure being bounced at you, but it's okay if you don't remember. How many times does Israel fit into the United States? Come on. How many? 100. Anybody bidding higher than 100? 300. Okay, a little higher? Okay, folks, it is 468 times. So, you know, that on its own says something. Um, a small country, attracts a lot of attention, has the third highest presence of the foreign press. And I think now we'll move up to the icing on the cake, the top two reasons that you should come to Israel. Israel is the headquarters, the site of happenings of most of the stories of both the Old and the New Testament. Okay? And by doing 
um, or paying a visit to Israel, you'll be giving yourself a chance to run in the places the Lord walked and give yourself a chance to see the Bible come to life. What you've read all your lives in black and white comes into colors. It's vivid, it's there, and it's just waiting for you. We, as we said, have a trip planned for early September of 2017. I believe we still have a few places. Yeah, so if anyone wants to make a last-minute decision and join us, we'll be more than happy to see you. And if not this year, then in the future, anybody from Jubilee is a friend of ours. So we like to greet friends and give us a chance to show you proper Israeli hospitality back in the Holy Land. Thank you very much, and God bless you all. Thank you. <laughs> it's my friend. We're gonna um, we got a chance to have a couple of days. We're gonna go to Beaver Creek for a couple of days. I'm gonna show them the mountains and give them a chance to hang out. So um, it's a deep and wonderful friendship that is developed between uh, Reuben and Galita and Chris and myself, and we cherish that. It means the world to us to have them here and to have them. Uh, I told him when we were standing over here and you just clapped for the number of people that have been to Israel. There's a fondness in our church and a heart for the nation of Israel. People understand why the connection is there as a believer, as a Christian, why we're engrafted into that branch right there and why we love Israel and why we love the Jews. And to have your response to that does my heart, um, does my heart really well. So well done on your part. Let me pray. And uh, just refocus us on um, the message and uh, get our hearts in a place. We're teaching um, about the fruit of the Spirit, and today we're talking about peace. And here's what I want to pray. I want to pray that peace would not be something that you would become uh, more aware of um, as far as a definition. Peace, by definition, should be experienced in our hearts and in our lives. We shouldn't be smart about it, like I can tell you what it means. We should be able to express, here's how I experience peace in my life. And so I just want to ask, you know, teaching, teaching can open doors, but the Holy Spirit is the one that has to make it real in our lives. And so let's just, let's open our hearts and ask the Holy Spirit that peace would become real to us. So Father, uh, as I teach right now, you have the most remarkable way of taking something that's so simple and something that is um, pretty inadequate by itself and then using it to, um, to, to make a highway into our hearts and into our lives. And Father, I just want to ask right now for every person's heart to open so that your roadway of peace can find an entry into us where we wouldn't just become smarter by definition, but we would become... <laughs> Lord, we would become aware more than ever of the peace that you offer us and how close that peace is and how quickly we can tap into it and live in the peace of God. God, make it real to us today. Do what I can't do, what no human can do. Make the peace of God real in our lives. Let people not just experience it for the moment, but take it out of here and learn to live in it every day. God, I thank you that you love us enough that you offer us your peace. And I pray that in Jesus' name. If you want that, say amen. Amen. All right, here's a question. Where do you experience peace? Just think about it for a moment. Um, some people experience it at a place, like a beach 
or the mountains. Chris and I um, were on vacation a couple of weeks ago. We had a chance to get away. And normally our vacation in the summer, for 20 years, we've gone to Phoenix. <laughs> Finally in our 50s, we've wised up and realized that's not the place to go in the summer. We went to Vail. Nice. We had three days up in Vail. And I don't know if you remember two weeks ago, it was like cold down here. Got in the 50s, weird for June, and Vail was like 78 degrees, and everything was green, and all the flowers were blooming, and there's a little river that runs right through the town of Vail, and walking by that river, man, what a peaceful experience that was. Uh, some people experience peace when they read. Uh, Pastor Terry, when Terry goes on a vacation, he likes to drive because he says that through the time it takes to drive someplace, his mind unwinds and he experiences peace. Now, let me say, the last thing I experience when I drive is peace. <laughs> so it's kind of different for everybody. Some people experience peace in a relationship. Some people experience peace at church. Uh, some people experience peace with a hobby. Some people experience peace just uh, being quiet. Sometimes it's just sitting, uh, maybe it's walking. I just want you to think real quick, how do you experience peace? Can you define how you experience peace? And if you can, then I want you to think about this. For most of us, we define peace by an outward issue, trying to get it into our lives. Some place that we go to or something that we do. I wrote down four of them. Uh, maybe you relate to one of these. Um, so we've owned our house for a long time, um, 18 years. And we bought it when it was new, and we did the landscaping. And when we put everything in, I knew at some point I would reap on the trees that I planted. And now 18 years later, these trees are like a jungle. I mean, they've just, they're overgrown. But in my backyard, I created a place years ago that I knew someday I could go to and sit under those trees and I could read and I could pray there and it would be like my place in the summertime and in my backyard is a place I experience peace. But again, it's a physical thing that I'm trying to get in my heart. I wrote down a golf course, but I also put in parentheses not always on the <laughs> golf course till I experience peace. In fact, some of the greatest conflicts in my life have come there. Um, I said the mountains. That's one for sure. Here's probably... Um, Here's my time to experience it. Early in the morning. Yes. I, I just wake up early. Right. And um, before the sun is up, but after it's light. You know what I'm talking about that time? So it's not up yet, but it's light. My house is super quiet. You know, our kids are all grown and gone. And the grandkids aren't spending the night. And so that time, uh, Chris isn't up yet. And I get up, and there's... Just in my downstairs, it's peaceful is how I would describe it. And I experience peace. But again, it's an outside issue that I'm trying to get inside. And there's nothing wrong with that peace, but let's, let me give two definitions for an idea of peace here. There's the peace that the world offers, which is a physical thing that we're trying to get into us. And then there's the peace of God. And here's the difference. The peace of God is something that happens inside of you that then goes to the outside. So the peace of the world is external, that we're trying to get internal, and the peace of God is internal, that's trying to get external. 
And there's a world of difference between those two things. And most believers don't know how to tap into the peace of God. So what we do is we spend our time trying to tap into the peace of the world. And no matter how good that peace is, here's the problem with the world's peace. It's only temporary, yes or no? Because no matter what you do to find it, it only lasts so long. That's the problem with the world's peace. It's temporary. God's peace is eternal. God promises us a peace that if we get that peace and tap into that peace and live in that peace, regardless of what happens externally, man, on the inside, we have the peace of God. I think the clearest scripture that you can find about these two peace Jesus actually is teaching about this. It's in John chapter 14. Here's what's cool about this. Jesus is actually praying a prayer while he's talking to the disciples, and he's praying for them at their time, but then he prays prophetically for future disciples. So if you are a believer, Jesus prayed this prayer over your life, and here is his prayer for you. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And then look at him define the two different kinds of peace. I do not give to you as the world gives don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid so here's what jesus is saying there are two kind of peace there's the peace from the world and the peace that i give and the peace that i want you to have doesn't come from the world it comes from me and if you're a believer man god wants you to tap into that peace he wants you to live in that peace he wants you to be married in that peace he wants you to raise your family in that peace he wants you to work in that peace he wants you to live your life in that peace he wants you to be a neighbor in that peace he wants you to see life through that peace. So there are just simply two kinds of peace from the world and from God. And the difference between the two, the world is external that we're trying to bring internal and God's is internal that we're trying to bring external. So as I prepared the message, what I wanted was a clear uh, way to show you people operating in the peace of God. What it looks like and how you do it. So I, there were three that stuck out in my mind as I studied uh, King David, Jesus, and the Apostle Paul. Now, there's far more stories about the peace of God ruling a person's heart and how it worked in real life. But these three stories stuck out to me because they're dramatic, um, they're powerful, and it's a clear-cut example of the two different kind of peace and how the peace of God can work in a situation. So let me talk first about King David. You second Samuel uh, as the story let me paraphrase it real quick because it's just, it, it's, it, it would be two chapters to try to read to you. Uh, David was the king of Israel. Even today when you go to Israel, King David is revered. One of the places that we go to on our journey there is to the tomb of King David. Both for Jews and Christians, it is a holy site to behold and to see. It's a powerful place. He today is still that king that... When Israel looks back over their history, man, he is a revered figure. What I love about the Bible, though, and why I believe the Bible is real and not trying to sell you something, is that the Bible tells the whole story about people. It doesn't just put the good things in there like it's trying to sell you something. David was a great king, but he was a human like you and I. And here's the one, the one thing I can tell you about us. We sin, yes or no? You guys don't, apparently, but this side of the room, I heard you. We sin. We sin. It's the fall of man. And David, as great as he was, um, his greatest sin that the Bible records was a sin of adultery. And it wasn't the adultery that itself was the thing that marked it. It was um, David caused the murder of a friend of his by having adultery with his friend's wife. 
And it begins in 2 Samuel saying this, at the time when kings go out to war, David remained behind in Jerusalem. And I just point this out every time I teach this. When you're not where you're supposed to be, that's when you get in trouble. I think every time adultery is committed, it's a person beginning. There's some place they're not supposed to be when it happens. When a person gets in trouble, you're not where you're supposed to be. David's not where he's supposed to be. He remains behind in Jerusalem while everybody else goes out to fight. And in Jerusalem, something's going on in his life because he's not sleeping. He's up in the middle of the night. He's walking around on the roof of his palace. And the Bible says that he spots a woman bathing. And he lusts after her. And because he is powerful in the king, he has his attendants go and get her. Now, this isn't me. This is what the Bible says. David slept with this woman and she got pregnant. And here, (laughs) she's the wife of one of his generals that's out fighting where he's supposed to be. And David decides to cover this up, which I think is probably the reaction of most of us when we sin is to cover, not confess, and not ask for mercy, but to cover. He tries to hide it. And so what happens is he brings this general, Uriah, home, thinking that once he gets home, He will go in and sleep with his wife. That'll cover up the pregnancy. No one will know. Case closed. But here's the problem. This man is devout. He doesn't want to be back in Jerusalem. He wants to be doing his job, but he's compelled by the king to come back. So instead of going to sleep with his wife, he sleeps in the doorway of the palace. And David can't get him to go home. So his scheme becomes worse. He decides to put him in the worst part of the battle, knowing that without actually killing him, it'll kill him. And that's what happens. He's put in the worst part of the battle and he's shot with an arrow and he's killed. David then takes his wife, Uriah's, as his own and tries to cover it up by marrying her. But here's the problem. Uh, Maybe man doesn't know, but God always knows, doesn't he? And God sends this obscure prophet named Nathan, who only comes up a couple of times in the Bible. He's a very obscure person. Nathan comes in with the courage and the guts of a lion, stands before the king and tells him a story, and here's his story. In your kingdom, David, are two men, a rich one and a poor one. The rich one has everything, more money than you can count, more sheep and cattle than you can even try to guess. And then there's a poor one, and all he has is one sheep, but he loved that sheep, and he cared for that sheep like it was his own. He actually held that sheep as it grew up and took care of it. He loved that little sheep. And when the rich man's friends came to town, instead of killing one of his own sheep to feed his friends, he took the one sheep from the poor man and killed it and left the poor man with nothing. What do you think should happen to that man? Before David could think twice, the Bible says, rage burned in his heart. So he speaks out loud, tell me the name of that guy and he'll be dead before the sun goes down. Nathan, with an act of courage, goes, you are that man, king. To David's credit, instead of killing that prophet, he repented before God. He asked God for his mercy and his forgiveness. And this is what Nathan said, because your heart turned to God, God will spare your life But the life of this child, David, you have embarrassed God. You are a leader, and in front of all Israel, you've led them astray. 
And by your hand, it's going to cost you the life of this child. And here's what the Bible says. For seven days, one week, David fasted and prayed, and he laid in sackcloth and ashes, and he wouldn't eat, and he wept, and he mourned, and he cried out to God for seven days for the life of the child. And at the end of seven days, the child died. And as soon as David heard the servants talking and reasoned in his head that the child was dead, he got up, he bathed, he put on good clothes, and then he asked for something to eat. And his servant said to him, listen, when the child is sick and dying, you won't eat, but when he's dead, you get up and eat. What's going on here? And David just makes this powerful statement. He said, who knows? Maybe in crying out, the Lord will hear and be merciful and spare the child, but now that he's gone, there's nothing else that I can do except move forward in life. Now look, on the surface, that sounds so harsh, doesn't it? It sounds almost like a heartless, like a cold thing. Here's what I want you to see in this. What David had in this situation was the peace of God internally that controlled the external. Here's what I know. My job requires me to deal with death from time to time. I think maybe the hardest enemy out there is the death of a child or the death of a spouse. There's few things in the world like it. When I was a young pastor, we were in Fort Collins. And I had this couple, they'd been married less than a year, that drove from Cheyenne, Wyoming, down to Fort Collins to help us. We were youth pastors. And he worked this crazy night shift. And he would get off of his night shift early in the morning, and then they would come and they would help us and work with us. And that was a, about a 45-mile drive back and forth from Fort Collins to Cheyenne, and he'd work overnight. And they hadn't worked with us but about four or five months. And he got off early one morning and was headed from Fort Collins back up to Cheyenne, and he fell asleep at the wheel. And his car drifted another lane, and a semi hit him head-on and killed him. And I remember getting that call. It was probably 4.30 or 5 in the morning. It woke me up. And she was just so broken. And she was just like, Pastor, can you, can you just can you come here? I said, of course. So driving there, I just want you to think about this. What would you say? You know, these are the things they don't train you for in seminary. What's the right words to say? What's the right prayer to pray? Here's what I've learned through the years. It's not the right, it, just, just be there. Just tell somebody you love them or look them in the eye. At his funeral, I, I'd never seen this before. This woman, at a time when she should have been so shattered and broken, and she was, don't misunderstand, gets up at her, her husband's funeral and tells all of his friends there, and all the people attending, and I mean, the church was packed. She begins to tell them about the mercy and the goodness and the grace of God. She begins to tell them that God is faithful and that God is for her and what her husband's relationship was like with Christ. And at the end of it, she has everybody who wants the peace that she has to raise their hand. And not one person, people are, I'm weeping sitting behind her. I'm the first one with my, I want that peace right there. I saw the peace of God operate in her life in a way that, listen, it wasn't external that was giving her any peace. It was what was going on inside that was controlling the outside. Now, 
we can sit here and hear this message, trust me, unless you've been there, you don't understand. This isn't some hype issue because you can't hype yourself at times like that. So I've been on the both sides of it. I've been with people who have no hope in those situations and trust me, man, the devastation is unbelievable. If you want to fill in the blank right there, it's just simply this. Death is an enemy of peace, especially the death of a child or a spouse. But here's what I've witnessed. The peace that passes all understanding that the Bible talks about is real. This is Philippians 4, 7. Paul writes these words. The peace of God. Say it with me. The peace of God. One more time. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Look at me. I have seen the peace that makes no sense in a person's life. Uh, mind if I just talk? Still have it in my notes, but so I'm going to do it anyway, but I want you to agree with me. So, I, you know, it's good consensus. Um, four weeks ago, I got a... Um, call um, a man that used to attend our church that moved to Dallas and we were pretty good friends when he was here but I hadn't heard from him for several years and he called me up and um, in a real weak voice he said I have uh, stage 4 prostate cancer and he said they've basically given up nothing's worked and he said pastor I want you to help me prepare my funeral that's a hard one that's a tough one right there. I don't mean to be morose right now, but... And his wife is sitting in the room. And as we begin to talk about this, man, the assurance and the certainty of where this guy is going and what's going on, of course they're hurting, and of course they're devastated, and of course they don't understand. But then there's the other side of it. In perfect peace. In perfect peace, they tell me about the goodness of God. In the natural, that makes no sense. How many times do we rail at God... When this gets messed up, and here's what should happen. The thing inside of us should speak to the stuff outside of us. Maybe here's the best way to say it. The reality that you're most aware of is the one that you reflect. If all you're aware of is what goes on out here, of course, that's what you're going to reflect in your heart. But if the reality of Christ is true and his promises are real and you live it in your life, then it reflects to everybody else. How powerful is it when a believer walks in that peace in a world that's in utter chaos right now? How strong would it be for the church to shine the light of peace? Amen. You okay? Yes. So I'll move on. Here, I'll go. I'll go. So let's give you the second one, Jesus. This is my favorite one, actually. Um, here, here's what I know. At least three times in the New Testament, there's a story about Jesus and the disciples in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and a storm comes up. Now, one time they're by themselves and Jesus comes walking out to them and then two other times he's in the boat with them. And my only thought about this is um, at some point when Jesus said, hey, let's get in the boat and go to the other side of the lake, do you think the disciples ever said, like by the third time, we don't want to go to the other side with you? Because <laughs> something always happens when we, when we do. There's always some storm. Mark chapter 4 is one of these little stories. And this probably is the clearest dynamic between people who are controlled by the outside and a person who's controlled by the inside. People who are getting their peace from circumstances and one who's getting his peace from the peace of God. 
It's just the most clear, concise scripture. So it just says simply, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, it's Jesus talking, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with them. And then just suddenly, a furious squall come up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. So the waves are coming over the boat, and it's filling with water, and they have no pumping system except for arms and buckets. And they're little boats. These are not big boats. These are tiny boats. They're, they're basically packed in. They're trying to get to the other side, and the waves are just overwhelming them. All right, now look at this. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. I always wonder, is he faking it? waiting to see what they're going to do. Just let me, could you sleep? I freak out when turbulence hits an airplane. If I'm sleeping, I suddenly wake up. I, how, this is just amazing. Jesus is in the stern of the boat, sleeping on a cushion. Look at this. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Tell me, that's not a passive-aggressive statement right there. You did it again and you don't care. <laughs> Jesus doesn't even answer them. He gets up, rebukes the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And this is what he says to them Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? I think it's the most clear and concise story in the Bible about the two different pieces. One is the peace the disciples were having. As soon as their world goes chaos, they lose their peace. Yes or no? And then there's the one of Jesus who, regardless of what's going on outside, maintained the peace of God. And here's the most interesting part of it. The peace in him ended up influencing the peace outside of him. Yes. I love that story right there. How about this? Any storm you can sleep in, you own the storm, and the storm doesn't owe you. Amen. Amen. When your peace is so great that the storms of life can't shake you any longer, they don't own you you now own them. And when you own them, now you have the chance to say to them, stop it. Amen. Amen. The pressure on the inside is greater than the pressure on the outside. Amen. Is that a better way to say it? The fill in the blank there if you want it. The storms of life are an enemy of peace. Especially things that are out of our control. Let me just ask you this. Uh, maybe it's rhetorical and maybe you do want to answer. How many of you like to control things in life? And the rest of you who are not raising your hands, you just are like controlling me. I'm not going to answer. So let's do it one more. How many of you like to control things in life? We all do. No, even for, I don't mind. I just put it on cruise control. No, but don't, give me a break. We all like to control things. How many of you have lived long enough to realize stuff is out of your control? Absolutely. That's a freaky place to be at when it's out of your control. When a work situation, when a financial situation, a marriage always takes two people. You can have one completely devoted and one who changes their mind, and it doesn't matter what the devoted one does. Right. And that's out of your control. Yes or no? Yes. Now, you talk about a situation that can affect a person in such a negative, horrible way. Serving God, it's not some bubble or force field that keeps bad stuff away from you, here's the promise of Jesus. Regardless of what happens, I'll never leave you or forsake you. The peace of God can rule your heart and mind. You ever heard that little 
statement, faith is the opposite of fear? Maybe that's true. I think that story tells us faith is the foundation of peace because the only thing that Jesus says to his disciples is, where's your faith? I think what he's saying is, if you had faith, you'd find peace. I think Jesus, I think the disciples wore him out at times. I mean, he would show them the miraculous, and then five minutes later, they would forget what they just saw. And we laugh at that. Look at me. If you've ever experienced the miraculous of God, we're forever without excuse to lose our faith. But how easy is it to lose your faith in a moment of crisis? <laughs> Sometimes when I write examples, I'm in my office at home and I'm studying and I write down stuff. And because I'm by myself, I'm like, yeah, that's okay. And then I get up here and I think to myself, why am I going to open my life like this in front of all these people? Let me just quickly give you something out of control. I was 21. Uh, I was 20, just barely, and Chris was 19 when we got married. And we were trying to do these three ridiculous things at this point in our life. Go to school, get into ministry, and we started having babies. I'm trying to keep the wolf out the front when the stork flew in the back door. <laughs> Before I turned 22... I had two children. I worked a night shift because it would allow me during the daytime to do stuff at the church. So I wasn't sleeping. I pushed myself to the ragged edge and uh, middle of the night, right before I turned 22, I wake up drenched with sweat. I felt like I was being choked. I sit up in our waterbed. That was back in the day. You remember? Yeah. You remember that? Yeah. My friend John's saying, be careful. Be careful. Okay. I, my heart is beating out of my chest, and I can't get it to stop, and I felt like I was going to die. That's the only thought. I, I'm going to die. And it wouldn't go away, so I actually got up, and I drove myself to an emergency room. And I just told them what was happening. They took me back and they examined me. When they got done, this doctor told me, we can't find anything wrong with you. And so this is what she tells me on the way out. She says, maybe you need to talk to a psychiatrist. This is uh, 84. It's before they diagnosed anxiety. I called the psychiatrist and I described what was going on. I said, I think I'm going crazy. I think I'm losing it. And she told me the word anxiety. For six months, every night, if you've ever had a panic attack or an anxiety issue, here's the deal. The fear of getting one is worse than actually having one. It'll keep you up all night long. It won't allow you to rest. It just So now I'm at, I was at the breaking point, but now I'm past it. And I feel like I'm losing it, and I can't stop it. Nothing helps. And part of it just simply was this. At that point in my life, I wasn't taking care of myself, but I also didn't know how to give stuff over to God to tap into the peace that he offered. I was trying to find it in external things. I would tell myself, if I can just get past this thing, I'll find peace. You ever been there? Yeah. 
God, what a lie that is. And here's, here's the mercy of God. It was during that time, man, that the Holy Spirit taught me the peace of God. Okay, so I was not quite 22, but let's call it 22. Let's go forward 31 years. I've not had a panic attack for 31 years. I'd never had to take medicine for it. I'm not against it if you do. I wish maybe they would have had something during that time to help me because it was bad. But when I learned this secret, and don't, don't, I'm not saying I'm above it. I'm tempted every day to panic. I'm tempted every day to worry. Sometimes I give in to it. I have a junior version of the Holy Spirit I married that reminds me all the time (laughs) where to find peace. (laughs) Let me give you the last one, and I'll just close up with this. Paul. So we talked about King David. We talked about Jesus. Talk about Paul. Uh, Paul, when he writes these words, is not at a really good place in his life. He's not at a vacation home in France. He's not driving the newest chariot. Paul's at a, um, he's in a prison. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, is written from a really dark place in his life, and he admits it, but then at the same time, the peace of God comes out in the same sentence. So look how he writes. Uh, we're hard-pressed on every side, but there's not a period there. There's a comma. But we're not crushed. Man, I'm perplexed. Here's what he's saying. None of this is making sense to me right now. I can't understand. I love God and I'm trying to follow him, but like everything's going wrong. But I'm not in despair. I feel persecuted. And his persecution is not a few people calling him names. They throw rocks at him. They put him in prison. They take stuff away from him. And instead of giving up and quitting and going back or cursing God or just like the whole thing's false. He goes, I'm persecuted, but I'm not abandoned. I'm struck down, but guess what? I'm not destroyed. And then he says these words, and all these things, we are more than. So how does a guy say, hey, look, right now I can say it, but it's hard to say it when you're under it. You ever been under it? (laughs) What is that? So either he's delusional, which a lot of the world looks at believers and thinks they're delusional. There are people sitting in this room today think I'm delusional saying what I'm saying right now. (laughs) Here's the fill in the blank. Fear is an enemy of peace, especially physical and psychological danger. It truly is. It will steal your peace if you let it. But the peace that Paul had wasn't based on external issues. It wasn't persecution. It wasn't torture. It wasn't abandonment. It wasn't rejection that defined his peace. It was what God said. Now here's the conclusion. It's just simply as easy as this. The peace of God can be yours if you do this. Do you want to know the formula? That's really the wrong way to say it, but this is what the Old Testament says, and then it's quoted in the New Testament, and this is what the prophet Isaiah wrote millennia ago. You, God, God will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast or fixed on him because they trust in you. 
Here's the secret to tapping into peace. Regardless of whatever else happens, you've got to stay connected to God. So look at me real quick. The number one tool the enemy uses in our life is to disconnect us from God. If he can disconnect you from God, then he's the one speaking into your situation and trying to influence you. He'll use the world to do that. He'll use people to do that, circumstances to do that, health to do that, whatever. Your job is to stay connected to God. And if you know this, you know it's true. If you can maintain this relationship this way, it controls everything this way. But if you lose it this way, then this controls even this. Do you understand what I'm saying? This external can influence even our relationship with God if that's the thing that we eat from every day. But if you can stay this way, engage this way, which that's your job. Your job's not to get yourself to heaven. That's Jesus' job. Your job is to stay engaged with the Father, man. It's to love God. Stay in that place. That's the secret. That's the secret. When you do that, the peace of God guards your heart. It guards your mind. It watches over you. So easy to say. And this is where you can't just go out of here and like do it. This is where we're reliant on the Holy Spirit to do it in us. Most of the time when we pray at the end of a message, I have you bow your head, close your eyes, because in anonymity... We feel more safe to respond. What if the price of peace was surrender? Would you surrender? So here's what I'll ask you. How many of you need the peace of God that I just talked about in your life? Look at your pastor. I need double. The more you have in your hands the more tempted you are to disengage and worry about that stuff. God, I need the peace of God to rule my heart and my mind. And all I can do is come before God today and go, God, this is what I need and this is what I want and will you do this in me? And God loves you so much that the answer is yes. Father, God, I just want to pray over this group of people right now. Not just sitting here um, in front of me, but who are sitting, watching, and listening. Maybe they're driving right now. Maybe they're um, on a trip someplace listening right now. Father, right now, let the peace of God transcend all the other stuff and anchor deep in our hearts. I think the best time, man, to find peace would be in a storm. So maybe right now a storm is just simply raging in your life and you're like, man, I, I just, pastor... I want it, but I don't. God, let your peace right now fall in this situation. If the storm of life right now is overwhelming, if the waves are breaking and the wind is blowing and the lightning is crashing and it feels like everything is lost right now, let your peace fall in this situation. Let your peace be the thing that speaks to the wind rather than the wind speaking to our peace. Maybe I put my finger on your situation when I was talking and you're like, okay, I hear that. Maybe the situation that you're facing or feeling or dealing with is so far beyond 
you don't even know how to vocalize it. I want you to know God knew. He knew you would be here and hear this message. He caused you to cross paths with him today. It wasn't accidental. He wants his peace in your life. Let me just say this last thing. Maybe you sit here and you are a skeptic. Maybe you think the whole thing is bunk. Maybe you think we are delusional. Maybe you think it's hype. Let me dare you to pray this prayer. God, if your peace is real, show it to me in my life. God, if your peace is tangible and actual and livable, do it in my life. It's a noble prayer. Father, let your peace rest on us. Jesus said it best. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives. I give my peace to you. Let your peace guard our hearts and minds. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.